an idea that I have been kind of interested in for a while now is um, this idea of, of who Christ was. Who was this man who lived 2,000 years ago? Um, and what was he like? What was he what was it like to know him, to relate to him, to be uh, his friend or his family member or live in his community? And I, I did a sermon a couple of years ago, I guess, or a year and a half ago or so called Wild Jesus. And it shows it was in the same passage. He turns water into wine and then he enters the temple in Jerusalem and, and kicks over the tables and chases people out with a stick or a whip, depending on which passage you read. And uh, you just get this idea that this guy was kind of unpredictable. He was, he was different. He was very unique in the way that he lived and the way that he related to others. And then I came across a book by a guy named Philip Yancey, um, and it's called The Jesus I Never Knew. And, and Philip Yancey's talking in this book about sort of he begins with the preconceptions of Jesus that we grow up with. That he was just a really nice guy, right? And he says those don't really help us to see the Jesus that is revealed to us in the New Testament. Our preconceptions actually kind of get in the way. And... So one of, the, one of the emphases of this book by Philip Yancey is to just try to enter into the humanness, the humanity of Christ, the, the realness of him be, being one of us, being human. And so in that journey, uh, one of the places that, that Dr. Yancey stops in chapter 4 is in a passage that we would come, we've come to know as the temptation of Christ. It's, it's where Jesus meets the evil one and they kind of face off. And so Philip Yancey uh, titles this chapter, The Showdown in the Desert. Okay? And uh, so, I, you know, you can hear like the, what's that whistle in the Clint Eastwood movie? And then the rattlesnake, cue the rattlesnake. Right, And so Jesus and the evil one are coming face to face. And this is a, a bizarre encounter in every possible way. And, and one of the things that I think you will see as we read through this passage is Jesus making an intentional choice. Like the devil knows who, with whom he is dealing, right? He, he knows what he's up against and who he is facing, and he knows the power that Jesus must possess as God. And you see Jesus making a volitional choice to remain human, to remain in his humanity, and sort of voluntarily limiting his his divine capabilities. And I want you to just kind of cue in on that aspect of this text as we read today. From I'm going to read the passage in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan 
and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. I don't know about you, but my temptations don't look anything like this, and they typically don't play out like this, right? Uh, What in the world is going on? And I think, you know, most of the time that I have read these passages, and there, there are three, possibly four, depending on how you count it, different accounts of this encounter in the Bible, in the, New, in the Gospels. And they all, they all have a, you know, a slightly, uh, slight variation from one another, but they all have a few things in common. And in the, the reading of this passage and this encounter, it's always been sort of safe, I guess, to look at Jesus' response and, and you're, you know, draw conclusions like, well, our strength comes from the word of God. Jesus continually goes back to the word of God in his answers to temptation, to the evil one. Um, I wish, actually, this is a little bit of an aside, but I wish they had translated the word devil. Uh, it's actually a, a bad transliteration of a Greek word, diabolos, and it just means accuser is the way it would have been used. And so I, I, I kind of wish that they would translate the, the, word, the, the word the devil to the accuser because that's what it says in the, in the original text, just so you know that. Um, and so the accuser comes to the Son of God, and he knows, he knows that Jesus has or possesses this divine power, this capability 
to do whatever he wants, actually. And Jesus, in a bizarre kind of twist, if you will, just backs off. He just drops his guns in the middle of the showdown and says, I'm not going there. You know, I've, I've got the fastest gun in the West, and I'm not going to take it out of the holster. And what I want us to look at this morning is, is kind of the, the cosmic implications of Jesus remaining in his humanity here in this moment, in this encounter. Um, I, I would argue or suggest there is far more going on than what we would typically read or, or perceive in reading this passage. There's far more going on in the, in the spiritual realm in this encounter between good and evil than we would typically perceive in our reading of this exchange between these two individuals. So what is the first thing that we notice? Um, and, and I'm going to sort of put a theory out there for you and then we'll, we'll elaborate that a little bit. That what Jesus is doing, actually, is he's, he's making a choice in, in the face of each of these temptations to choose a much more dangerous, a much more uh, or much less certain approach, to choose a much um, more difficult path. And I'm going to give that path the name love. That Jesus, in his engagement of these temptations, chooses love over what each of these temptations might represent. So let's, let's look at that for a moment. His first um, and perhaps the easiest one to grasp of these three temptations is Jesus telling us to choose love over satisfaction. Um, you know, how easy would it have been to just turn the stone into bread? He was hungry. He felt that hunger, as, as you may or may not have felt over the course of your lifetime. And we all know what it means to be hungry, but not 40 days of hungry, right? Um, or I guess that's part of going to Seir, right? And they throw you out in the wilderness. And how long does that last? Six days? All right. But you can, like, kill stuff and eat it if you can, right? Um, and so uh, that's the military survival training thing, right? Like that basic good summary of SEER, outdoor survival. What is, what is everything in the military has an acronym. What's the, what does it stand for? Survival, evasion, resistance, escape. All right. So in case your plane gets shot down or something, you know how to survive until somebody can find you all right and uh so you probably felt a little hunger i'm guessing during that six or seven days but it's really not long enough to starve to death right um they're not trying to kill you they're just trying to prepare you um but jesus gets to this point where he is hungry 
He's legitimately hungry. Uh, Bay, how well do your boys do when they're hungry? Not very well. They start tearing things apart, right? And, and nothing, no, all bets are off. The rules don't apply. And, and, you know, they're eating boxes of raw pasta if they have to. You know, it's crazy. Um, so hunger is a huge driving force in our humanity. And Jesus, facing real hunger, chooses to stay there. And he gives this great response. Um, you know, man does not live by bread alone. He's quoting from an Old Testament passage, which the, the, the rest of the passage says, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Jesus is making a, a point in the face of this very human temptation that God's word is greater than or more important than our own satisfaction. Um, let's just, what would Jesus have gained from taking this offer of turning the stone to bread? Well, relief, right? Immediate gratification would have been his. His suffering would have ended. Um, and the, the, the accuser implies that he would also receive a certain degree of recognition. Like, if you are the son of God, prove it, right? Do this, and then people will know uh, that you're the stuff. Uh, ironically, Jesus does later do this with the loaves and the fishes, multiplying the loaves and feeds 5,000 people uh, with just a few loaves of bread and a few pieces of fish, right? And so, what's that? But not for his own satisfaction, right? Uh, for very different motives. But interesting, isn't it, that it's the same miracle, essentially, the, the production of bread, this, this fundamental stuff of human life. And so Jesus is capable of doing what he's being asked to do, but he chooses to remain in the limits of, within the limits of his humanity and not take the bait, so to speak. And so he, he would have gotten relief as well as recognition. What would he have given up? Um, one thing he would have given up is his position as one who was willing to engage in self-sacrifice. He, he takes the suffering upon himself in sort of a... a precursor to what he would do at the end of his life when he says I'm willing to suffer I'm, I'm willing to to bear this for their sake um, so he would have given up his place as the one who is willing to self-sacrifice and he would have given up this idea of faith that is for us apart from manipulation this is something that, that Philip Yancey bears out in this chapter very well, I thought, and I was, I was actually quite edified by this line of thinking. But essentially, um, if Jesus had become the magic miracle worker, who just, when people, hey, make a bird, you know, and whoop, he makes a bird, um, it would totally have cheapened who he was. 
And it would have helped in one way in that he could just say, hey, I'm God, deal with it, right? Watch this, poof. And we would all go, whoa, that's irrefutable proof, right? Either he's uh, David Copperfield or he's Jesus. It's, I don't know yet, but it, this, is, this is like pretty cool. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't play his hand that way. He backs off and he just kind of smiles and quotes this Old Testament passage back to the accuser and the devil moves on. The second encounter, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rearrange them for the sake of, of getting to the coolest one last. All right, So I'm going to go to the third encounter as it occurs in this passage uh, next from verses 9 through 12 where Jesus teaches us, and this is sort of an elaboration on part of that last sub-point I was making, that we are to choose love over proof. Love over proof. Um, this is um, this is where he is taken up to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, and the accuser says, "Just throw yourself off, you know, bungee jump, dude. Uh, God's got gotcha. you. He's he's going to save you, right? He's not going to let his son die." Uh, and and Jesus just sits there and kind of quotes again the Old Testament. Um, what would Jesus have gained from taking this offer? Again, proof of his position in the cosmic pecking order. Um, if he had done this and the angels saved him, it would have been the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that nobody knew was an Old Testament prophecy until the accuser quotes it to Jesus, Psalm 91. Um, so interesting that the devil understands the Bible better than we do sometimes. Um, he sees this passage in the Old Testament. He sees Jesus' ability to fulfill it right here, and he calls him on it. He says, if you're the one, dive because God will save you. I know he will. It's in his word, all right? And none of us, none of, no one I'm aware of ever claimed that passage to be a messianic prophecy prior to the devil identifying it. Um, but Jesus would have gained proof of his position and a shortcut to an easier glory, right? The temple would have been filled with people, presumably. They would have seen him fall, they would have seen him stop in midair, perhaps not visibly being able to discern the spiritual powers that held him and kept him from dying. And he would have stood on firm ground and everybody would have bowed down and worshipped him. Right? I mean, you would. I would. That would be like, whoa, <laughs> what was that? Um, and Jesus says, no, it's not what I'm here for. Uh, I'm not going to take a shortcut to the glory that is mine. Um, what would he have given up? The mystery that is embedded in the nature of faith. So, 
he would have taken a, a cheaper form of mystery, the, the ability to mystify, to, prove, to do this amazing act, and swapped, you know, taken that in place of the mystery that you and I live with, which is not always an easy mystery. God, are you there? Why would you let this happen? Why are you the way you are? Why are you so distant at times? Why are you so frustrating to me at points in my life? Jesus would have taken the mystery out of our faith, and he would have taken our freedom to doubt. So, if he had proved himself in some scientific way when tempted to do so, he would have eliminated this entire aspect of our relationship with him that is infused with doubt and our limited ability to understand, to grasp, to perceive, to hold on to who he is. And Jesus said, I'm not afraid of their doubts. I'm not afraid of their fears, of their frailties, of their limitations. I'm not afraid of all of that. I'll overcome it. I will. So I'm just going to stay here in my humanity and We'll get, we'll get through this kind of the old-fashioned way, if you will. Doesn't he understand that we would all be better subjects if there was irrefutable proof? Don't you want that? Don't you want undeniable proof of, of God's existence, of who Christ is or who he was or what he did? Don't you want that? And, and wouldn't he have been a better savior if he'd proved it somehow? And Jesus says, no, I don't think so. Because one thing that he's after, and Yancey, Yancey, Philip Yancey plays this out fairly well in, his, in this chapter, is he, Jesus came to restore freedom to the human soul. And freedom means that we're free. We're free to doubt. We're, we're free to deny. We're free to fail. We're also free to do everything right. We're free. And if Jesus had coerced, and we'll get to this point more strongly in a minute, if he had coerced us, then we, there would be no freedom. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So we're to choose love over satisfaction love over this idea of proof and we're to choose love over control or coercion if you will um, here in verses 5 through 8 Jesus gives up the, auth- the offer to have authority to control the world this one this one this is the one in my never so humble opinion this is the one um, holy cow, that's an offer. Um, total authority, uh, 
all the glory. There's just one caveat. You've got to worship the accuser, right? Think about, think about this trade for a minute. If Jesus says, okay, you're going to give me 99.9% of what I want. I can, and I can avoid the cross. I can avoid all, we'll, we'll, I'll elaborate this in a second, but all of the human suffering to come, I can avoid all of it by taking this offer. I will establish peace on earth. There will be no more strife, no more war, no more disease. I'll end it all. I'll make everybody get along. One huge problem. That's not the way God works. It's not, even, it's not even about the worshiping of Satan. This is about the freedom that is ours in Christ that would have been removed from the table had Christ accepted this author. I'll try to explain. So what would he have gained? Well, he would have taken away our freedom, which doesn't sound like a gain. But think about this. What does freedom allow to happen in the world we can make a long list of Hitler's and Stalin's and Castro's and um, Pol Pot's and anybody want to it's Saddam Hussein's and there's Obama's Osama bin Laden what ISIS to get a little more current I did say that that was not intentional um All of that could have been ended if Jesus had accepted this offer. And he could have looked down the future of history and said, I'm going to eliminate so much death and so much suffering and so much sorrow by just taking this bait. He would have all authority. We would have none. And he could have ended all of the world's suffering. But what would he have given up? Love, in a word. He would have given up love. Yes, ma'am. Well, there's more than, there's. Well, even if he was, even if it was true, Jesus would have given up love. Because love, and we all know this, love involves risk. Love involves um, putting ourselves in a place where we are vulnerable and subject to um, heartbreak, right? And Jesus says, I'm not going to avoid suffering. I'm not afraid of it. I'm going to choose to love. And so, he pushes past this temptation for power and authority that would have produced a forced obedience, right? So he would, have, he would have demonstrated once and for all, I am the son of God by throwing himself off the top of the temple and being caught. And then he would have said, and now 
I have all authority, so no, Saddam, you can't do that to those people. Or pick one, right? Or just no, Tom, you can't do that. I'm in charge. I'm the one. I rule this roost. And so he, he lets all of that go. This is like Pandora's box. Hell itself is unleashed on humanity. And Jesus had the, uh, the, the chance to stop it. And he said, there's something bigger than what you're offering them. And it's, it's love. I love these people. And I want them to be free. And only my sacrifice on the cross can accomplish that for them. And so the other thing he would have given up was redemption. Our redemption. Um, none of us would have suffered like we do in life now. But there would be, uh, it would just be a hopeless, meaningless, cold, calculated life. Um, Jesus knew that the only power to change a human heart, to change my heart and your heart, was love. And that it was only the fullness of the love of God lived out all the way to the cross and beyond that would demonstrate that to us. He knew that the only way to redeem our sin-stained lives was to offer his sinless life in death. You know, it's no irony that um, the government under which Jesus lived said essentially follow our laws or go to the cross. They used coercion, fear, uh, the imposition of their will to get their way. Jesus and Yancey does a great job of pointing this out. In the, in the least manipulative invitation that has ever been extended in the history of humanity, he says, take up your cross and follow me. As bizarre as that seems, that's freedom. Because in him... We are not coerced. We're not manipulated into faith. We are left in a position of, of suffering and doubt, but with a God who doesn't leave us alone, a God who came here and lived here and suffered here with us, and who says, I love you, and I will finish the work that I started. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you that you are resistant to manipulation and coercion and force and that you remained unmoved in your son to take these temptations and alter eternity by doing so. Lord, you had a plan and that plan was born of your love for your children and you didn't waver or very, you didn't subvert it for the sake of an easier peace. You took 
the path that was most difficult, that involved the most suffering, because it also gives the most freedom, the most joy, and the most love. And we thank you that you understand these things so much better than we do. And Lord, help us in our own lives not to be coercive, but to be those who are free and who love freely as you have loved us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.